Hello everyone and welcome to the August 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folds with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The state fund lost their battle to retain over $100,000 in court-ordered restitution. Here's what happened in the Federal Court of Appeals case of Silverman versus the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Jeffrey and Faye Silverman owned and operated an electrical contracting company. The state fund provided their workers' compensation insurance. The Silvermans were indicted for underreporting payroll and underpaying premiums. They pled no contest to the charges and were convicted pursuant to a plea agreement which required them to pay over $100,000 in restitution to the state fund. After making restitution, the Silverans filed a petition for bankruptcy in the United States Bankruptcy Court. The bankruptcy trustee filed adversary proceedings against the state fund to recover the criminal restitution payment. Bankruptcy law does not allow one creditor to obtain preferential treatment over another. The purpose of this law is to discourage creditors from racing to the courthouse to dismember the debtor during his slide into bankruptcy and to facilitate the bankruptcy policy of equality of distribution among creditors of the bankrupt debtor. Payments to one creditor made within 90 days prior to the filing of bankruptcy are subject to this law and can be taken back by the trustee and used for the benefit of all creditors. Since the state fund was paid the restitution within this 90-day window, the bankruptcy trustee succeeded in recovering the money. The state fund appealed and unsuccessfully argued that criminal restitution payments should be accepted from the statute even if the statute does not on its face create such an exception. This argument was based on a U.S. Supreme Court holding which expressed a deep conviction that federal bankruptcy courts should not invalidate the results of state criminal proceedings. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was not persuaded by this argument. They concluded that allowing the trustee to recover the restitution payment given to the state fund will not interfere with California's state criminal proceedings. The trustee's recovery of the restitution payment will not eliminate the Silverman's obligation to pay the restitution money to the state fund even after the bankruptcy. The Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy doctrine defeats a television extra's premises liability claim against CBS. Here's what happened in this case. Entertainment Partners sent its employee to work for CBS as an extra on a television show. The soundstage where the show was being filmed was leased and operated by CBS. Rainwater had accumulated between two doors at the entrance to the soundstage and there were no mats in the area. The extra slipped and fell in the water and suffered injuries. The employee filed a personal injury action against several defendants, including CBS, for negligence and premises liability. CBS responded with a motion for summary judgment on the grounds that it was a special employer of the extra and therefore the action was barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation law. In support of the motion, 
CBS provided the declaration of the Vice President of Labor Relations and one of the show's executive producers who declared that entertainment partners maintained a workers' compensation insurance policy that provided coverage and included CBS as a named insured. The extra opposed the motion, claiming that no policy had been provided to her following discovery requests to produce such a policy. She asked for a continuance of the motion. The trial court ruled in favor of CBS. The Court of Appeal concluded that in this case, the extra's attorney failed to explain her lack of diligence in obtaining the discovery, and the court did not abuse their discretion in refusing to allow a continuance. The judgment in favor of the employer was affirmed in the unpublished opinion of Constance Adler Galloway versus CBS Broadcasting Incorporated. And in regulatory news, August 25 marks the second anniversary of the launch of the Electronic Adjudication Management System, also known as EAMS. EAMS transformed the way the DWC conducts business by integrating its court and administrative functions into a comprehensive case management system. The second year milestone is an opportunity to look at how EAMS will continue to evolve to meet the challenges of the workers' compensation industry. Eight months after launch, EAMS was recognized by the Computer World Honors Program for bringing DWC's units together and modernizing its system. And by December 2009, 16 months after launch, one million document batches, each batch representing multiple documents, had been successfully processed into the system. EAMS has faced challenges as it brought about these changes. According to DWC Court Administrator Kevin Starr, the goal is to get the majority of the DWC external partners to go paperless. The original vision for EAMS was that most filers would go paperless right away, but not every filer was ready to make that transition. So, the DWC took a measured approach with optical character recognition paper forms that are scanned to get data into the system. OCR forms will be reduced over time as more filers go electronic. Currently in development is a new form of electronic filing and expanded access to case file information called the Present Term Solution or PTS. The PTS will add a third filing method to EAMS and will directly benefit high volume users and indirectly benefit others by reducing the amount of paper filed at district offices. The PTS development began in January and is more than 50% complete. A trimmed down bill to attack California companies that don't pay employee taxes and workers' compensation insurance is close to a legislative vote. AB 2770 has been modified in the state Senate to become a pilot project for the pool and spa industry. An Orange County business owner has been heavily involved in lobbying the legislature to tackle what he calls the state's fraud epidemic. He claims that 60 to 80 percent of some industries are cheating on their employment taxes and workers' compensation insurance. Some licensed contractors claim they have no employees despite the fact that they are not realistically able to complete a contract without them. 
the bill's authors agreed to a modest pilot project for just one industry to try and maximize the prospects for the bill to pass. The Senate Labor and Appropriations Committee have approved AB 2770 and is awaiting final legislative approval. The bill is now on the assembly floor for concurrence and then it will go to Governor Schwarzenegger who has not said whether he would sign it. The California Chamber of Commerce has not taken a position on AB 2770. The pilot project under this bill would identify certain criteria that would trigger a state audit of a company. The pool and spa industry has been singled out for the test because their trade association has identified a specific way to measure how much labor a company should use on a contract. The rough rule of thumb is that if a company buys $100,000 in plastering supplies for a job, it should use $100,000 in labor. This formula will help state auditors search for companies that cheat the system. The William Dallas Jones Cancer Presumption Act of 2010 has been passed by both the Assembly and the State Senate. If Governor Schwarzenegger signs the bill, the presumption that firefighters and police officers with cancer is industrially related will apply long after they retire. They already enjoy a version of this presumption. Under current law, Former public safety employees who get cancer within five years of retirement are presumed to have acquired the ailment from their old jobs. The new legislation, if signed into law, would double that presumption period to 10 years. In many cases, the government would throw in disability pay on top of retirees' pensions. The bill is named for a cancer-stricken former secretary-treasurer of the California Professional Firefighters, the state umbrella organization for unions that are backing the bill. The union's campaign for the bill insists that police and firefighting work causes cancer. But there is much dispute about this link according to the Centers for Disease Control's National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. It is not clear if the governor will sign or veto the bill. California faces a $19 billion budget deficit this year. Last year, the governor vetoed several bills that passed the legislature that would have increased either workers' compensation costs or add to a hostile business climate. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an online forum for members of the public to review and comment on a proposed revision to the benefit notice regulations. The proposed amendments generally reduce the number of attachments required to be sent with benefit notices. Here are some of the proposed changes. There will no longer be a need to send a copy of the DWC fact sheet with notices if the correct fact sheet has already been sent within the last 12 months. The notice that no permanent disability exists will only be required where the employee has sustained compensable lost time. The QME panel request form will be required as an enclosure to the notice of denial of all workers' compensation benefits and the notice of delay in determining liability. The requirement to send the specified fact sheets and the QME panel request form will be limited to cases where the denial is related to a medical issue that can only be resolved by a medical evaluation. These proposed changes do not become effective 
until they are in final form and submitted to and approved by the California Office of Administrative Law. Comments about this proposed law will be accepted at the forum until 5 o'clock p.m. September 9. And now our medical news. According to a study released in the journal Radiology, imaging experts claim that doctors are ordering too many unnecessary imaging tests, which raises the cost of healthcare and exposes patients to excess amounts of radiation. The paper represents the best ideas from a two-day summit representing more than 60 organizations involved in medical Im imaging. They said many doctors order tests that will not find the cause of their patients' complaints. In most cases, an imaging procedure enhances the accuracy of a diagnosis or guides a medical treatment and is fully justified. But in some imaging procedures, they are not justified because they are unnecessary for the patient's care. Overuse of the costly scans has been a concern of policymakers for the past few years, prompting cuts in Medicare reimbursement. A report last year by the National Council on Radiation Protection and Measurement found that Americans receive seven times more radiation from diagnostic scans than they did in 1980. Two main reasons for overuse are doctors who refer patients for scans at their own imaging facilities and doctors who order tests to protect against potential lawsuits. But better communication among doctors and providing physicians decision-making technology could cut down on unnecessary tests. Many large hospitals like Massachusetts General in Boston have developed decision support software that helps doctors ordering scans decide which tests would be best for their patients. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has ordered Johnson & Johnson's Depew Orthopedics Unit to halt sales of its Corail hip replacement system. They claim the company is marketing it for an unapproved use. The FDA also said that Depew's TrueMatch personalized solution system, Artificial Knees, also lack FDA approval. The order comes amid a tighter crackdown on medical devices, including possible changes to approval process. It is surprising that the physicians and hospitals do not check for approval before the devices are used in a surgery. Implantable devices are an expensive component of surgical costs. Perhaps workers' compensation claims administrators and utilization review organizations should confirm that there is appropriate FDA approval before authorizing use of these implantable devices. And in other news, the California Department of Industrial Relations and the Division of Workers' Compensation in association with the Mexican Foreign Ministry and the United States Department of Labor are reaching out to workers across the state during Labor Rights Week 2010. The nationwide initiative revolves around Labor Day and is the result of an ongoing collaboration between local Mexican consulate offices, federal and state labor workforce departments, and others. Consulate offices in seven California cities, Sacramento, San Francisco, San Jose, Fresno, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and San Diego will host informative presentations between August 30th through September 6th. 
The total number of fatal workplace injuries fell by 17% last year, according to a recent Bureau of Labor Statistics report. The Bureau said that the 2009 total was the smallest since its census of fatal occupational injuries began in 1992. The drop far outstripped the 6% decline in total hours worked. The agency noted that the numbers were preliminary and could be revised upward, suggesting that budget constraints at state agencies might have delayed the collecting of information. According to the Bureau, highway incidents were the most frequent cause of fatal workplace injuries, accounting for more than 20% of the total. Falls were the second most frequent cause, followed by homicides and being struck by an object. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPod, or iPad by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Please check our website again next week for more news.